Hello everyone, welcome, welcome, welcome. It is great to see you. Welcome to Poem Peeps. We're very excited today to be doing one of our first pseudo live episodes. We're coming to you in real time from the Chess National Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. It is currently the morning of Monday, October 17th, and we have some amazing guests joining us today. And we want to hear what they've seen at the conference so far and what they're looking forward to um, in the next few days. Yeah, it's been unbelievable being down here. I mean, I think we can all sort of agree being back in person has just been an incredible like delight to see everybody here, like all the great talks and just sort of meet with everybody down here. So we're super excited to be at the conference and to be talking to some amazing guests. Um, so let's meet our guests. Let's dive right in. Uh, our first is Todd Rice. He's been on the show before. Uh, he's an associate professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University and the medical director of the ICU. He's also the vice president for clinical trial innovation and operations at Vanderbilt. Uh, he's a, a past president of the American Society of Parental Enteral Nutrition, and he's the associate editor of critical care for uh, the Chess Journal. And Todd, also, I saw you yesterday. I didn't want to interrupt you, but you had a very cool blazer on, so I wanted to make sure I let you know that as well. Well, yeah. uh, thanks for coming back to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Interestingly, the blazer sort of uh, divided people. Some people were, loved it and other people were like, what are you trying to do with that blazer? <laughs> well, count me in the camp that loved it for sure. But I'm, I'm excited to be here. And obviously, uh, I, you know, I do a ton of stuff with Chest. I love the organization uh, and, you know, they have great meetings. So trying to promote the meeting and, and talk about all the good stuff that's here is, uh, is exciting. So thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Todd. And I, I feel like we have to post you and your blazer so everyone could uh, see what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And next, uh, returning to the show, we have uh, Dr. Matt Suba. Matt is an assistant professor of medicine and intensivist at the Cleveland Clinic, where he's also the associate program director for the Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. He founded and runs the website intensivist.com and is a well-known, uh, fantastic educator, both in person and online in many formats. And Matt, I think for me, from our undifferentiated shock episode that you joined us for, I will always remember you um, as introducing the getting on the bus um, for your <laughs> approach to, to shock. So thank you so much for joining us today. I know you have several um, sessions at chess that you're leading, so I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Monty. Thanks, David, for being here. It's an honor to be here again with both of you, as well as Todd and Sabani. Uh, I feel like a little bit undeserving to be in the same company as all of you, but I'm really happy to be here. Definitely deserve it. And we're, we're, we're happy to have you on the show again. Uh, and finally, we're happy to welcome a newcomer to Palm Peeps, uh, Subhani Chandra. We're really honored to have you on. Uh, she is an associate professor at Columbia University. She's also the vice chair of medicine for, uh, for education and the internal medicine residency program director. She is also the incoming chair of the training and transitions committee at CHEST and the chair of the CHEST scientific program committee for CHEST 2022. So, Subhani, we are thrilled that you took the time to come and be on the show with us today. 
Yeah, I am so excited to be here and just hearing you read my intro. I feel so lucky. I really have the best jobs in, in the world to be had. I, I, can, I don't know how you find the time to do it all. I do have one question before we even dive in. Did you come up with Wheezy, Haley, and Spewdy as the president of Chess for this year? I feel like they've taken over the conference. <laughs> Uh, I cannot claim full credit, and I will leave it at that. All right. I love it. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Beauty's winning, I think, so far. Yes, Beauty seems to be the, the crowd favorite. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Subani. And just as a brief reminder, this podcast isn't meant for specific medical advice, and the opinions expressed today are our own and don't necessarily reflect the policies of our respective employers. So, Ferf, let's go ahead and dive in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, conferences are amazing for so many reasons. We talked about it briefly, but just getting to reconnect with folks, you meet new people, everyone sort of has these shared interests, and you can just hear all the most up-to-date information. But one thing that's great now and that we've been missing out on is just getting to travel around the country and see some amazing uh, cities and amazing things going on. So obviously, this has been really limited, and I, you can feel it in the air that everyone's so happy to be together at Chess. So, uh, Todd, you know, you're local to Nashville. Can you give us some things that people can't miss out on uh, while they're here enjoying the chess conference if they take a few minutes outside? Yeah, as many of you know, over the last sort of decade, Nashville has sort of exploded in population and popularity. Um, and um, there's tons to do here. There's things like, you know, Country Music Hall of Fame. And as Music City, you can see live music almost anywhere. Uh, Broadway, which is a block from the conference, is sort of the main uh, honky-tonk track and the place where sort of all of the craziness happens. So if you came here to, to get crazy, that's sort of the place you want to be. Uh, lots of people said to me on, on Saturday night, you know, wow, it's really crazy here on the weekends. Uh, and I will say it is, but it doesn't really change during the week. Uh, <laughs> Tuesday night is a lot like Saturday night uh, on Broadway. And so... You know, you still have a couple couple days, couple nights here in the conference that you can, you know, take part in some great music uh, downtown. Food, uh, there's a lot of food places right around the conference center. Um, and then, you know, there's things like if you're a history buff, you know, uh, Andrew Jackson's Hermitage is not far uh, um, from Nashville. It's a, you know, 20 minute drive probably to see something like that. Um, Country Music Hall of Fame, lots of kind of music history here. Uh, that you can do. Um, I will say Nashville is known for its hot chicken. So um, hot chicken may be something you want to put on your to-do list. Uh, but, you know, in general, there's there's lots to do here. And and the nice part, and this is a big draw for, for the convention center, is, is that there's so much to do right around the convention center that, you know, you can pretty much walk to uh, a night of fun uh, in Nashville. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I feel like I've honestly gained five pounds already in the one and a half days that I've been here. Uh, Subhani, Matt, any exciting Nashville plans while you're here outside of the conference? I think within the conference, we've tried to build so much fun. So, I mean, I, I don't know if you got to go to the opening reception of the Wild Horse Saloon last night. I mean, that was yeah. phenomenal. Um, tonight we have chest after hours where Raina Oddish, Gabriel Boslett and Cara Dupoy will be spending an hour in conversation. There'll be live classical piano and, uh, some poetry. So I am very excited about, about that. And then of course, 
Tuesday night. There is no better party in town. Sorry, Todd. Um, other mm -hmm. than chess challenge. So you absolutely have to be there. Uh, that is, I think the highlight, one of the highlights of the meeting for me, for many people. Yeah, absolutely. The, com the, the party last night was, it was awesome. Sister Hazel back on my uh, playlist now. Yeah. <laughs> it was very cool. <laughs> uh, what about you, Matt? Uh, so, yeah, I, I think all the things that the, the committee members have put together for the conference have been great. And there's even been like live music inside of the Music City Center, like between sessions and things. Uh, my wife came with me uh, to the conference. Um, and uh, so we've been exploring the city a little bit, trying to try out new restaurants and also find some live music. Very cool. Hey, David, I'll say, um, uh, and maybe somebody was going to say something about this a little bit later, too. But uh, yesterday in the opening ceremony, um, and I'll butcher his name. So, Savani, you can you can uh, fill this in. Neil Pastricha. Uh, yeah. So the uh, the keynote speaker was amazing in that, uh, you know, he talked about happiness and, and trying to find happiness. And I think, um, you know, the the timing of it coming out of the pandemic and kind of the first time many of us have been at a in-person conference and seeing each other was was um, so on point. And, you know, lots of people that I hung out with last night were talking about the keynotes, keynote speech uh, and a keynote address and just the message there and, you know, how people were going to kind of respond to it. So uh, I think that was that was, you know, definitely a highlight of of um, chess so far for me. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Todd. That's so nice to hear. I think the message was really our starting point in thinking about who and what the keynote should be. Um, I'm sure people are thinking a lot about stuff. I'm curious to see how many will actually be able to create some distance between themselves and their cell phones. That's a tough one. Always tough. Certainly a challenge. <laughs> Well, that all sounds so fun, and I'm I'm sad to say that I had to stay back in, in Baltimore, and I'm missing the chess community, the food, the music, um, and I'm sure we could talk about Nashville all day, but I think the main reason um, it was to get to see each other and to hear a lot about um, what's going on um, in the world of pulmonary and critical care, and all of you on today have either already given or scheduled to give some really interesting talks. And while we know we don't want you to give away everything um, that you're going to be speaking about, we'd love to hear some pearls that you wouldn't mind highlighting. And Matt, I'll start with you. It looks like you're speaking about a systematic approach to circulatory shock, some controversies and severe ARDS, and specifically steroids in ARDS, and talking about driving pressure in that context. These all seem incredibly helpful, and I wanted to see if you had any pearls that you don't mind sharing with the audience right now. Sure, yeah, thanks for the for the uh, intro there. Um, so our session on systematic approach on differentiated shock was yesterday. It was well attended. In fact, David was there. So thank you, David, for coming. Um, yeah. And, and uh, to, to go back to the illusion of the bus that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, we talked about the bus. So brain, urine, and skin uh, as uh, places we might look for uh, cryptic shock or just to screen for shock in our ICU patients. And that's something that we do locally at, at my place uh, from the nurses all the way to the attending physicians. Um, and it really went through a nice uh, overview of uh, how you might approach shock diagnosis from most non-invasive to the most invasive uh, methods we have. And then today, uh, 3.15, uh, controversies in the management of severe ARDS. We'll be doing a pro-con uh, for steroids in all cases of ARDS versus just in COVID. And then similarly, uh, talking about whether immunomodulation uh, is appropriate outside of COVID ARDS or not. 
Uh, and then the last thing that I'll have is uh, advanced ventilator physiology, which is tomorrow, Tuesday, the 18th at 9.15. And this is will be a variety of topics to talk about um, measuring patient effort on the ventilator, measuring the distending pressures, uh, how well CO2 is being handled, and also just approach to synchrony. And I think the unique thing about that that everyone can benefit from is none of the things that we'll talk about will require advanced technologies. It's all things that are already, that you already have available to you and the ventilator at the bedside, just make it easier for you to understand what's going on for your patients on the vent and take care of them a little bit easier. Wow. That sounds great. I'm definitely not going to miss that one. And I love something that just can use all bedside techniques. That's like, uh, you know, I love the discussion of the invasive techniques that the shock talk to, but things you can do at bedside are always uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, Subani, you know, being the chair of the committee, I you know, just can't believe or how busy you must be this week. Uh, so again, thank you for being on the show. But even with that, it looks like you're doing talks about making the most of your mentor, career paths after fellowship, um, talking about bedside ultrasound cases, which I know I learned a lot from you during my fellowship about, uh, and uh, about imposter syndrome. And I'm really curious about this imposter syndrome talk and, and your choice to sort of give that at the conference day. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as most people know, imposter syndrome is really that feeling of being a fraud, honestly, of feeling like you don't really belong where you are and you're somehow there by some accident and you're faking it and that you may be, there's a fear sometimes of being found out, so to say. And I have found that there are sort of two sorts of people, a very large number that have these feelings and can relate to that right away. And then a smaller number who completely don't um, have it at all. And they, they wonder why people um, think this way. Like you can't really always easily logically or reason your way out of it. And, and um, that stems some people. But it actually stems um, from 2018 when um, the chess meeting, we were invited to do this in the trainee lounge, and the session was such a success. It was very interactive, and the stories from trainees after the panel started sharing their stories were, were just so moving. And we were invited to write an article about imposter syndrome by the Chess Journal, um, me and my co-panelists, um, which we published. And even just yesterday, um, someone came up to Anissa Das, my vice chair and co-author on that paper, and said that after that session on imposter syndrome, they went and asked for a role in their institution that they didn't think they really deserve, but they said, you guys encouraged me to do that. And now they have that leadership role. And um, they made it a point to come find us four years later and tell us that. So um, we felt that it was really, really important to make sure we talk about it. Uh, imposter syndrome is strongly associated with psychological distress, depression, anxiety, burnout, we all know are such big problems in, in medicine right now. And I think the challenge in particular with, with people who have imposter syndrome is that they are typically high achievers. They look like they are highly successful and very comfortable at it and doing a great job. And internally, they may be struggling. 
So I feel like it is so critical for all of us to recognize I am a program director, as you mentioned. I mean, these are the kinds of things that program directors, mentors, and colleagues need to be really aware of so we can support each other better. So we reprogrammed it this year. That's awesome, Subhani. And I think that's so great that you, you know, kind of listen to what what the audience was was asking for, you know, from four years ago and, and bringing that in. I think just talking about imposter syndrome, you know, um, from a chest organizational standpoint is so wonderful because it's going to impact so many people, as you just mentioned. Um, I do want to talk um, a little bit about the ultrasound cases, too, because that does seem incredible incredibly clinically applicable and helpful. And I think going to a little bit of my imposter syndrome along the way when I've been trying to learn ultrasound, you know, myself, other trainees that I work with, and many of the faculty too, are always looking to improve their ultrasound skills. And aside from practice, practice, and more practice, do you have any um, specific resources that you think are helpful for learners? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think ultrasound resources online are just so many and many of them are pretty good it's hard to pick you know anyone out i think of course i learned at chest and i have been teaching at chest um ultrasound for a while that's where my home was for a long time so having a vetted renowned course is really important i would say practice of course is important and i'll get to that in a moment but making sure you systematically develop a foundation and understand at least some of the physics and principles of ultrasound really then helps you implement and understand things that you may not have seen before, but you're seeing on the screen because you understand how the ultrasound waves are interacting with the tissue, with the body, so you can figure things out. So I think having that solid foundation is key. And then practice, yes, but practice smart. What do I mean by that? Um, for example, practice, look at the things that you're curious about in your patients or just walk through the ICU, even if you're not the ICU resident or the ICU fellow and ask the team there who they're worried about, who's newly in shock, who they want to, are trying to rule out a DVT, they may have ordered a formal study already and go do that study. But then make sure you follow up with what the formal study shows. So you can compare your findings with what the formal study found. And that's one way of getting around not having a, a teacher or a guide at the bedside all the time. Yeah, that's incredibly good advice. Uh, I'll definitely have to, I need to sign up for one of these more formal courses. Again, I took one in the past, but you feel like it can always re-up. Uh, Todd, you've also been incredibly busy during this conference. I know you were speaking on Saturday, you spoke yesterday, you have some ongoing, you talked about updates in critical care, updates in nutrition, renal failure and IV fluids, bag mask ventilation for airway management, critical care skills for faculty, including evaluating the acutely crashing patient, practice changing research. And I saw you yesterday make an argument about critical care services and being regional. Um, so obviously I'll have to come to your talks to hear about everything, but wondering if you could share one or two uh, novel insights or really important uh, insights about from your critical care medicine and nutrition, renal failure, and IV fluids talks that you talked about on Saturday. Yeah, so um, this is actually an annual uh, postgraduate course that we've done for, I don't know exactly how many years, it's someplace like seven or eight years. And um, 
you know, it's a little bit of cheating in the fact that um, I learned so much from the course, more than I teach by far. Um, and um, because I'm faculty in the course, I get like, you know, to sit in that room and listen to all the talks without, you know, having to make a special effort in that. So so that that this year we uh, added kind of a, a session in it. So normally we have four talks and we added uh, COVID specific session this year. Um, by Nita Kadir, and then um, changed one of the sessions to a neurocritical care session by Dave Jans. Uh, still talked about sepsis, still talked about respiratory failure, and kind of the the new articles in the last year, year and a half that you know are big articles that might change practice. Uh, and then my part in that was I did nutrition, IV fluids, and renal failure. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, there's a new trial called Energize, which is glutamine and burn patients, which um, Unfortunately, glutamine didn't, enteral glutamine didn't improve the outcomes of burn patients, but it's kind of been one of those unanswered uh, immunonutrition questions that's been hanging out there. Uh, and in that session, we also spent a lot of time talking about fluids. Uh, many people, I think, know that I have a bias. I'm definitely a balanced fluids guy and love me some balanced fluids. Uh, but I think there are data, and it's become much clearer in the last year, there are data that for people with traumatic brain injury, uh, balanced fluids, I think, are probably the wrong fluid. I think saline is probably the right choice for, for those mm -hmm. patients. Uh, there's some emerging data, and I'm becoming intrigued by whether traumatic brain injury is different than non-traumatic brain injury. So is a subarachnoid, non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage or a big stroke, ischemic stroke, for example, have kind of the same intra-CNS, intracranial uh, pathology that traumatic brain injury has. Uh, and I think it may, and I think saline may be the right fluid in those patients also. But it's it's pretty clear from the data that are out there that it's the right fluid in in TBI. So we we talked about you know some of that stuff. Uh, the other thing I'll highlight is is uh, I think uh, by far Chess does the best in education. Uh, they're an amazing organization for education, and that organization includes a bunch of these simulation sessions, uh, and that's what the stop the the crash uh, course is is. It's an extension of a three-day course that we teach at CHEST headquarters in uh, Glenview. Uh, we do it in four hours here, and it incorporates ultrasound, uh, airway uh, management, and mechanical ventilation management uh, in sort of the crashing patient. Um, that's obviously a passion of mine, but man, if you're, if you're interested in almost anything, you can get simulation from CHEST, whether it's navigational bronchoscopy or intrapleural disease or ultrasound is, as y'all had just talked about. Um, and I think it's something that if you're coming to a chest meeting, you should really explore because chest does it incredibly well. Thanks so much, Todd. And definitely something I want to take advantage of next year is doing one of the courses that you just mentioned or specifically getting to be a bigger part of this, the simulation. Um, and I'm also curious, though, about your talk on regional critical care services. You know, neither FERF nor I um, have brought that up before any of our other um, shows and something that we may not know too much about. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that session. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we do this for um, certain disease states. So we have level one trauma centers or we have, you know, um, I don't think they're called level one, but high level stroke centers. Uh, that patients go to. Um, and the concept is, is should we be doing this for more critical care diseases? And my, my bias here is, is that there are two critical care diseases that our patients would benefit if we could set up this model for, and it's, you know, severe sepsis or, or sepsis that needs an ICU 
and uh, real uh, respiratory failure, usually hypoxemic respiratory failure. And uh, there, there are cohort studies and observational data, so you know, take that for what it's worth, that suggests that if patients are treated at centers that do more of this, they treat more sepsis patients, they treat more acute respiratory failure patients, uh, those patients end up doing better compared to centers that, you know, have a lower volume um, of those. And um, where I really tried to tug on some pers- some empathy and some strings yesterday in the session was, I said, you know, should we, should we be upset that it appears that our sepsis patients are sort of getting a short stick? Uh, and what I mean by that is, is that there are great data that if you're in an emergency department and a, tr- a major trauma patient comes in, that your care goes down because all of the focus is on that major trauma patient as they roll into the emergency department. Same is probably true for STEMIs, same is probably true for acute strokes. And why, why is sepsis not in that, in that same category? Um, you know, our outcomes from sepsis are suboptimal. We would all like to have better outcomes from sepsis. And I think part of the, the push needs to be, uh, there needs to be a, um, higher importance placed on the prioritization of those patients and regionalization of them, you know, is, is one of the ways that we could do that. It was a pro con session and the con part is important, I think. And that is, we have to figure out the logistics of this because logistically this is hard, right? Not every sepsis patient in middle Tennessee can be transferred to Vanderbilt or, you know, we wouldn't have capacity to do anything. Um, so we need to figure out which are the patients that are, are, um, important to transfer. And my residents and fellows hear me say a lot of the time that critical care is divided to, there's about 20% of the patients that are unfortunately not going to survive no matter where they're being taken care of. There's about 60% of the patients who are probably going to survive no matter where they're taken care of. And then there's this this smaller group, 20%, 15%, whatever it is, where, where you're taken care of probably matters and what outcome you're going to end up getting. Um, and I think, you know, it's important in this regionalization discussion to try and identify who those 15 to 20% of the patients are, and then see if we can do something different to get those patients to a place where their outcomes might be improved. Uh, that's, so, thank you for summarizing that. And so just that so reflects another teaching point I make. It's like, you know, the, the make or break between good and great diagnostician is really like in 10% of people, five or 10% of people, right? Most of the time, you don't need all of this, but that's what we're working towards. Uh, well, so in addition to all these great sessions that you all participated in or moderated, there are just so many topics being discussed here this week. And, you know, I always lament the fact that I just can't go to all of them anytime you're at a big conference like this between pulmonary, critical care, sleep, pediatric adults, there's just a ton going on. So have you all heard or seen anything so far that particularly captured your attention uh, that you could share with us today? Uh, maybe Subani, we can start with you. Yeah, my gosh, there are really so many choices, um, as you just mentioned. But I think there's some pillars that are always sort of good to try out and you know you're going to learn a lot. I've actually been getting this question a lot from trainees because they're looking to go to sessions that are uh, have the just the right depth of information for them that they feel like they can relate and they can take back to them. So we think things such as literature reviews And then the Chess Journal is doing something new this year. They have sessions called Practice Changing Research. So key findings in the last year 
in specific areas and how they are applicable to your patients right away. So taking sort of the research right to the bedside, um, I'm very excited about those. And so I would definitely recommend checking those out. And um, the pro-con debates, Todd mentioned one. I think they really get at all sides of um, the topics. So those are those are great too, and they're sort of entertaining. Um, but the interactive sessions are another really, really great way to learn, and especially I think Chess does this so well. So things such as pardon the interruption, it's at 8 a.m. Um, every day, and... Um, something new this year um, that Chess has created, it came out of the listening tour that Chess did after the first wave of COVID and listening to patients, is something called the First Five Minutes Initiative. And it really trains you how very, very small changes can make such a big difference, not just in the physician-patient relationship, but in patient outcomes too. So there are so, so many things, but those are a couple of things to check out. Simulation, as Todd mentioned, I would echo that. Nobody does simulation better than chest. So if you're wondering what course to sign up at headquarters, the meeting is a good place to sample something out. You can go to a shorter session, check it out, um, and sort of see what's available. And then the educational games. Um, you learn, you have fun, you can go play in the exhibit hall or you can play um, at the player hub. And um, you learn, but you don't even really realize that that's what's happening. So that's really fun. Yeah, I totally, I love those games. I feel like I always have a really good time with that all. Uh, Matt, anything cool that you've seen so far that you wanted to highlight? Um, I kind of want to echo uh, some of the things Sabani said. I think the uh, pro-cons and the pardon the interruptions and things like that are, are really neat and kind of unique, uh, the, the, the pardon the interruption being unique to chest. Um, a couple of things uh, that are coming uh, today, since this might, might be up in time, is uh, a couple of pro-cons about standardized versus individualized choice of volume, resuscitation, vasopressors, and sepsis. Uh, that's at 11 today. And then... Um, Later this afternoon, I'm looking forward to this uh, session. As a uh, right ventricular enthusiast, there's a why the right ventricle fails, how to tell them what to do about it at 4.30. Um, and then tomorrow, sticking on the hemodynamic uh, pathway, I see there's a, a cardiac waveform interpretation session at 11.15 that I think will be really neat. And I just like these, uh, as Sabani said, you kind of titrate your learning to, you know, what, what's your depth in the current area? And what, and what areas do you feel strongest and weakest at? And I think, you know, those are things that are uh, something that we see every day and, and uh, would be helpful for people to get refreshed on or learn things that they haven't been exposed to before. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, Sabani, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to also mention that there is all through the meeting, even in how the sessions are designed, we paid a lot of attention to diversity and we program specific things that really call out and touch upon the disparities in health access and outcomes and um, how to get to equality there. So there are a few sessions. I believe this one's um, at 1 p.m. today on Monday, the 17th, about bias and disparities in healthcare. But there's also coming up in the next couple of days um, disparities of vaccine knowledge, access and uptake, for example. And um, in partnership with the APCCMPD, 
that's a mouthful, but that stands for Association of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine Program Directors. Um, there is a session I'm looking forward to. It talks about implicit bias and multidisciplinary teams. Um, so I think a lot of variety to take in. Oh, thank you for pointing those out. That's great. Todd, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think Matt and Sabani hit a lot of a lot of really um, big highlights and things to look for. I think uh, to add to that, uh, Sabani mentioned the the um, <clears throat> sort of practice changing articles that are put on by the chest sessions that are put on by the chest journal. Um, and the only emphasis I would say on that is is that chest this year said um, that we're not going to limit those to articles published in chest. So there are articles published any, in any literature, uh, any journal um, that we um, thought might be big practice-changing articles. So for example, for critical care, we're going to talk about <clears throat> a number of ARDS treatments that we have evidence work and aren't very well incorporated into practice and why that is. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, lots of um, uh, the uh, discussion around the a bias in pulse oximetry, uh, racial bias in pulse oximetry. Um, and, um, you know, that's going to be, a, I think, a very interactive and lively discussion in that session. Um, there's also sessions here uh, later today and tomorrow on, you know, how do you handle uh, misinformation in medicine, um, which is honestly something that, you know, if we had talked three years ago, never ever would have been on my radar screen. Uh, and now it's something that, you know, I, I deal with a lot. Uh, and um, um, it's not just in COVID, it's misinformation in lots of different things. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to kind of learning some strategies for dealing with that. Uh, and then, you know, to keep people here until Wednesday, Wednesday morning has a great program. Um, there's some uh, controversies in ECMO on Wednesday morning uh, that I think will be fascinating. And uh, I know there are also some um, cutting edge sepsis research posters um, that I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing what people are doing in sepsis treatment and, and kind of where that's going. So, uh, you know, it's such a chock full um, schedule and conference that um, there's so much good stuff. Yeah, thank you for highlighting those. I feel like the best part of this is, you know, seeing that the, there are things that nobody knows how to deal with, right? But there are experts everywhere that we can come together. So like the racial bias and post symmetry, we just had a local meeting about it. It's like, well, how are we going to incorporate this to our practice? We know this is an issue that warrants attention. And so I'm really excited to see what everybody thinks about it and sort of what the, the national dialogue is on it. Yeah. So Zubani, you mentioned it, you know, these conferences, I think can be really challenging or daunting um, for people who are first time attendees, especially trainees or young faculty, not knowing exactly where to spend their time. Uh, you know, I had an old mentor who told me to always go to the poster sessions of the things I was interested in, because it was like this treasure trove of upcoming data and projects that, you know, weren't ready for prime time, but were coming down the pipeline. So just wondering if you all have sort of general advice, conference advice for folks about where they should be spending their time and maybe about networking and things like that. Uh, and I know the chess networks that are you know, established to try to help people. So maybe uh, some comments about that would be great. Uh, Matt, maybe we can start with you. Sure. So I think uh, there's a couple things to think about is, first of all, what's your goal for the conference? Um, it's nice to try to you know get a, a good smattering of different things. But if you're really looking for networking, especially in a specific disease area or um, professional area, then I think it's good to try to gravitate towards those sessions, those poster sessions, see who you can connect with. And uh, you'd be surprised the ways that you can find opportunities for, you know, multi-center, multidisciplinary uh, 
engagement in different projects, whether educational or research based or even clinical practice based. So I think part of it is just to figure out what's your goal. Um, or if your goal is just to kind of broadly learn, then um, try to pick out a curriculum that meets what your current needs are and what your interests are. It's kind of got to be a little bit of both, right? You can't just uh, only go to the things you enjoy because then you'll be super saturated with those kind of things um, and maybe um, focus on some areas that you want wish to become stronger in. And then the other thing I'll say just as a general rule is, um, yeah, this is like a, a huge buffet and uh, you don't want to get overstuffed either. So take a few take a few opportunities throughout the day to refresh, walk outside the center, uh, walk around town or something and, and come back in re-energized and I think it'll help uh, make it higher impact for you. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, Subani, any advice for people? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you know, Dave, I think uh, anybody who knows me knows uh, that I have a soft spot for trainees. So I'm always thinking about how how do they take in the meeting and how do they enjoy this the most. Um, and I agree with uh, you know a lot of the advice. I agree about going to posters and oral presentations and abstracts. Not only are those the areas you're you know, interested in and you'll see what's up and coming and new and what people are working on, but you'll run into other people who are visiting those specific posters because they have similar interests and you end up naturally striking up a conversation and you end up collaborating or talking about something or working through an idea together. I also agree wholeheartedly with Matt's point that you should try to make sure you catch all everything in the specific areas you're really interested in, but also go to sort of broader scope topics. And that's where the literature reviews and practice changing research and things like that come in. And remember, you can always go listen. And if it's really not seeming like something that you are finding, this, this speaks to you, this is what you're looking for, then you can always get up and go to the next session. So look around. Things have more more to offer than may seem just by the title. So don't be intimidated. Go in. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you leave quietly, you can definitely leave, right? <laughs> as long as you leave quietly, you can definitely leave. This is true. <laughs> uh, Todd, anything to add? Yeah, I, uh, I completely agree. I always laugh when I do CME at the end of these conferences because they're always like, which of these sessions did you go to? And I'm like, can I pick three? Because I you know, spent time in three of these sessions during this hour. Uh, for me, you know, bouncing from session to session is, is um, what I do at a conference. And you know, a lot of times I'm more interested in a talk in a session than I am the topic of the session or other talks in the session. And so, as you said, you learn to leave quietly, you learn to enter quietly. Um, you know, sometimes you even just stand in the back for 15 minutes and hear the talk that you want to hear. Um, so I think that's one way there's a uh, nice network. So if you're in a critical care track, for example, you can follow a critical care network and a critical care track and kind of get that. Um, the other thing that I do is, um, and maybe this is uh, psychotic, I don't know, but uh, there are speakers that I always want to hear talk. Um, and sometimes um, it may not even be, you know, maybe a speaker I know who's given a pulmonary hypertension talk and I don't do pulmonary hypertension, but I know they're a good speaker and I have heard them speak in the past. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll just go because of the speaker and not necessarily the topic. Uh, and so, you know, look for the, the app 
especially the chest app is very user friendly and it has a, a very prominent search feature and you can search by speaker name. And so you can just put in a speaker name and it'll tell you when and where that person's going to speak. Um, and you can, you can kind of enjoy and take in stuff from, from that too. And the last thing I'll say is I agree with, with you, David, in the fact that uh, lots of people, I think, avoid the posters and the abstracts. Um, it's a little bit of rapid fire. It can overwhelm you in a hurry, but man, there's so much good stuff there. And it's like, what's coming down the line, uh, that, uh, that I think you're remiss if you, if you don't at least take in a, a few of those sessions too. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Subhani, go ahead. Well, you know, as a trainee, what we what we did with them in mind is create a trainee track. So if you go in the app and tap on more under education information, you'll find something called a trainee track. And we picked out sessions, events, experiences that we thought would be really wonderful for trainees to enjoy. So they should definitely check that out. And if all they do is follow that trainee track, they will have an amazing time and they will learn so much. And then the second thing I would say to trainees is that there are specific trainee lounge sessions that are outside of the sessions happening um, at the meeting and they happen in the trainee lounge. It's room 202, three times a day. Um, there's food, there's coffee, there are charging stations, and these sessions are really designed for trainees. So uh, those are two very simple, very easy ways to navigate the meeting as a trainee. And if you're a trainee and listening, do it. And if you're one of my trainees and listening, you're the best. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Such great advice from Subani. It's almost like she's the program chair for the yeah. <laughs> program chair, right. program director. My favorite hats. Monty's having a little bit of technical uh, difficulties, so we'll just keep uh, keep moving along. Um, uh, I think Monty did message me and Subani. She wanted me to make sure, or reminded me to make sure I ask. Uh, to talk about the chess challenge and maybe which teams are going on. And if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about it in case people don't know what the chess challenge is. Oh my gosh, I would love to. So chess challenge is a national competition and uh, teams of fellows, anybody can play. They play as a program, but any number of um, fellows from a given program can play to qualify. And the qualifying rounds happen over several months leading up to the meeting. But then the final championship event happens on Tuesday night at the, at the meeting. And it is a Jeopardy-style competition. And three amazing teams this year. A big shout-out to uh, our finalists. They are Brook Army Medical Center, Mayo Clinic, and New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. Um, so they'll be up there. It'll be very lively. It's Jeopardy style, but it's also chest style. Uh, there is fun. There is entertainment. There may be skills challenges. There may be quizzes and puzzles. And the audience can participate, get giveaways, um, and free drinks, food, and a party afterward. I mean, what else could you ask for? Um, it's Tuesday night. It's in the Omni Hotel at 7.30. 
Oh, that's amazing. Well, good luck to all the teams that are competing. That sounds like it's going to be a great event. Uh, Well, we're coming up on the hour. I have one more question for you all and want to be sensitive to your time so we can all get to the conference and enjoy some sessions. You know, I'm just curious, you know, I thought Chess did a really nice job of the virtual conferences. Um, You know, I think it's really challenging, but they had built a good platform for that. And I'm wondering if for all of you, is there anything we sort of learn from these virtual conferences, things that we are taking or still incorporating, uh, or are we all just really happy to be back in person and we're trying to block those memories out? <laughs> uh, David, I can start here. Um, this is actually uh, a little bit with my president of Aspen hat on. Um, and I was president of Aspen uh, during COVID and we had virtual um, conferences but there were learnings from the virtual conferences that are things that we need to figure out how to do better with real conferences. Specifically, um, there are attendees at a virtual conference that would never go to an in-person conference. They don't have funding. They can't get time off work. Um, maybe even, you know, to, to play into what Sabani was talking about earlier, maybe they even have imposter syndrome in there. Like, you know, I don't feel like I should be at that place with those people that I've heard names of before, et cetera. Um, but trying to tap into that, the, those groups of people and those people um, to continue to provide them opportunities for education and learning and um, all of that, uh, I think will be a little bit of a challenge for our in-person conferences going forward, but something that I think we need to, we need to really concentrate on and try and figure out. Yeah, I think you made such a key point there, Todd. And so we did learn a lot. So there are a few things that are happening that maybe have become almost normal for us that may not feel as something different. For example, we are much better at live streaming something. So some key sessions at Chest are being live streamed. Um, and so, so you can you can find those um, on on YouTube and Facebook at ACCP Chest. Um, we are able to record quite a few of the sessions, and people can register for on-demand access to these. So, a little bit of asynchronous learning. So, if you if you missed it, or if you really loved it and want to go back to any particular talk, you can do that. Um, many of the sessions or the things that come up in discussions um, will then yield webinars uh, later on. And Chest is pioneering um, sort of virtual reality, VR in, in Sim. And you can actually go try that out and check that out and do some um, airway management and other things in VR. Um and so a lot of that is happening in the experience um, chest, the exhibit hall, uh, live games, escape rooms. We did a virtual escape room, so now we can do those outside of the meeting too. Um, but there is, I think we should definitely, to Todd's point, engage broader people who can be here, people who only have a couple of hours in the day um, to join in and enable that. Um, but really nothing beats being back in person. There is just joy in the hallways, the number of reunions and hugs and, you know, happy smiles that I've been seeing is just really, really nice. David, let me hop in really quickly and, and um, piggyback on something that Subhani said. Uh, and I'm 
I suspect the oldest person on this call. Um, and so me talking about virtual reality is maybe a little bit of a fish out of water, but um, this is a concept that, you know, younger folks like you all maybe are, are laughing about this, but for me, this is a concept that was completely off my radar screen and is now being incorporated into a reasonable amount of critical care training, where, as Sabani said, you essentially do virtual reality innovations or virtual reality chest tubes or you know, virtual reality procedures through this VR technology. Um, and you know, instead of the traditional, as I was raised, right, watch one, do one, teach one, or you know, five, and then you're proficient, um, many of many of the trainees are going to be pretty proficient in procedures before they've ever actually done one on a patient um, because of this virtual reality that's coming in uh, this is a huge i think this is a huge advance for training and a huge advance for our patients uh, and it's really 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 exciting yeah at bed digital they always have had a great sim lab and then now recently i saw them doing it with an oculus on while doing the sim so it like creates all the other things it was, it was very very futuristic very cool well, this has been a super fun last hour. We really, really appreciate you guys taking the time during a busy conference schedule. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you have any last minute thoughts to share, we're certainly welcome to hear them, but just really thank you for your time. Thank, thank you, you for, for having, having me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having us and for promoting Chest and, and the conference and um, you know, looking forward to, uh, to continued in-person conferences and learning. Absolutely. Well, I hope to see you all around the conference today. For anyone listening, if you see something fascinating, make sure you chat, tag hashtag Chess2022, of course, but tag us as well as well at Palm Peeps so we can see what you're thinking about and share it. Uh, we'll see you all there. Uh, this is a, an original episode that is recorded live, so it's not really written <laughs> uh, and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. Uh, we'll, we'll see you out there. <laughs>